So I want you to, to start off this morning by thinking about a question. Why did you come to church today? Okay, if you're watching online, you're not off the hook. Like, why did you uh, pull up YouTube or church online and start to watch this service this morning? What is it that compelled you uh, to, to take the time out of your busy week to come to church today? Maybe for some of you, uh, you're like social people, and maybe you value community. You know that God calls us to be part of a, a church family, and so you came this morning to connect with others. Maybe some of you came because of the worship. Maybe you are someone who connects with God through music, and so you came to worship God and community. Maybe some of you came uh, to, to focus on scripture and to dig in and learn about God through scripture or to be encouraged in your faith or to kind of reorient yourself towards Christ after a busy week. Or maybe some of you are here this morning because it's Sunday and because on Sundays you go to church. Or maybe this is what you've been doing your whole life. You can't imagine doing it any differently. 10 o'clock Sundays, church, 11.30, Swiss chalet. You know, maybe it's just all you've ever known. We all have things in our lives that we do just because it's what we've always done. Right? And usually when those habits begin, they're really purposeful. They're intentional. We start doing them for a reason, but in time, we can forget why we even started doing them in the first place. I'll give you an example. Okay, until 2020, I drove a beautiful white 2005 Toyota Corolla. Yeah, and I loved that car. She had like 350,000 kilometers or something on it. She was cozy. She was reliable. She never broke down and left me stranded. It was like a family heirloom. It had made it through three generations of my family. But as she aged, she developed some quirks, as we do, right? And one of those quirks was that the windshield wipers only had two speeds, off and supersonic turbo wipe speed. And one of my pet peeves is when windshield wipers are going too fast for the amount of rain that's hitting the windshield. Anyone else? And you get like that terrible squeaking noise every now and then. It's the worst, right? It's terrible. And so every time it rained, I controlled the windshield wipers manually. Every time I needed to clear the window, I just flicked the little lever like down and then up, and the wipers would go back and forth. And eventually, I didn't even have to think about it. It was just like breathing to me. I did this every time it rained. I just got so used to it. But then a couple of years ago, I got a new car. And a little while ago, I was driving with a friend. I had a friend in the passenger seat. And after a few, uh, few minutes, my friend looked over at me and she said, why are you doing that? And I was like, doing what? Doing what? I had no idea what she was talking about. And she was like, why do you keep turning your windshield wipers 
on and then off. Like, why don't you just leave them on? And it took me a minute to figure out what she was even talking about. I just sat there confounded. But then I realized that I was just automatically just flicking that lever down and then up. Right? I was on autopilot. I wasn't even thinking about what I was doing or why. And sometimes we do the same kinds of things when it comes to the practices that we use to live out our faith. Whether that's coming to church on Sundays or saying grace before meals or reading our Bibles in the morning. Sometimes we get to a place where we just kind of go through the motions, but we lose sight of why. And we lose sight of how to let these practices kind of shape us and form us as we live our day-to-day lives. This morning, we're wrapping up a series on the church as a community of grace. And we're going to be focusing on one of those practices that sometimes we engage in on autopilot without really thinking about what we're doing or why or what it means. But that Jesus left his disciples with as a way of anchoring themselves in their identity as people whose lives are shaped and defined by grace. And it's really meant to be a practice that's at the heart of our life together as his followers. This morning we're going to be talking about communion. But before we look at Jesus and how he went about explaining this meal to his disciples, we're going to go back further in the scripture because it's really important context to understand something uh, very special about the Jewish people. And I want you to think about this for a second. When you think about uh, the Old Testament and what God called his people to in the Old Testament scriptures, what comes to mind for you? How were they called to live? What kind of things did God want them to do and to pay attention to to? Maybe some of you, the first thing you think about is the law, the 613 commandments, right, that God gave to the Israelites after he uh, led them into slavery, and that's a good answer, by the way. Uh, Maybe you think about the rituals, the sacrifices of worship that the Jewish people participated in. Maybe you think of, like, social justice and the call of the prophets uh, for the Jewish people to be a community that cares for the poor and the oppressed. But one of the things that's easy to miss when we're thinking about what faithfulness looked like in the Old Testament, is this. God's people are called to be people who remember. People who remember. This comes up again and again throughout the Old Testament. God calls his people to be people who remember. Not necessarily to be people who remember their keys, Phew, right? Not necessarily to be people who remember other people's names or all of the credentials for their online accounts so they don't have to constantly, you know, uh, reset their passwords. But God calls his people to be people who remember who God is and who they are and where they've come from. To To be people who remember that they worship the one and only God who created the heavens and the earth and who made a covenant with their ancestor, Abraham, and who led them out of slavery in Egypt, and who provided for them when they were in the wilderness, and who promised them that he would redeem them and lead them into a future of peace and freedom. There's an article by Harvard University that says this about 
memory. In many ways, our memories shape who we are. They make up our internal biographies, the stories we tell ourselves about what we've done with our lives. They tell us who we're connected to, who we've touched during our lives, and who has touched us. In short, our memories are crucial to the essence of who we are as human beings. In the midst of the chaos and the busyness of life, and in the face of all of the competing things we look to for our identity and our value, God calls his people to be people who remember that we belong to him. And that we're we're a part of this bigger story that he's been telling throughout all of history. And throughout the Old Testament, God gives the Israelites rituals and practices, rhythms of fasting and feasting and rest and work that would constantly realign their hearts and their minds around God's activity in their lives to help them remember who they were from generation to generation. And one of the most significant rituals that the Jewish people celebrated was the Passover festival. The Passover festival commemorated an event that was central to the Jewish identity, the exodus of the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. And remembering that moment in their history when God set the Israelites free would always anchor them in the truth that they have a God who keeps his promises, that they have a God that they can trust, right? That they have a God who's faithful and that they are his people. That they had a future, right? Because of this God that they could trust, that they could put their faith in. And no doubt, Like, we can be sure that the Jewish people needed to be reminded of this truth again and again, right, at different points of time in their history, like when they were wandering for 40 years, right, in the wilderness, or when they were conquered by the Babylonians and scattered from their land, or when they were living under the oppression of the Romans. They would need to be reminded who God was and who they were as his people. And so regardless of what was going on around them, Every year, the Jewish people would celebrate the Passover. They'd have a special meal together, and they walked uh, through this story that would remind them who God is, who they were, and how they were called to live as his people in the world. And when Jesus was preparing his disciples for his death, when he was trying to help them understand what it all meant, how to wrap their heads around it, He didn't give them a textbook. He didn't pull out like a whiteboard, right, and draw them like a diagram or a flowchart. What did he give them? What he gave them was a meal, the Passover meal. And he redefined it in light of what was about to happen through his death and resurrection. If you have your Bible, you can open it up with me to Luke chapter 22. We're going to have a look at um, Jesus' last meal with his disciples and see kind of how he walked them through this. Luke 22, verses 14 to 20. It says this. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. 
For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. Now, isn't that beautiful? Jesus says to his disciples, I have eagerly desired to share this Passover with you before I suffer. It's like in the midst of all of the inner turmoil that he's experiencing as he's anticipating what's about to happen to him. This is the moment that he's been looking forward to, being gathered around the table with his disciples, sharing this meal together, giving it a new meaning that he he knew his followers could come back to again and again. Verse 17, after taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. So Jesus has taken these symbols, the bread and the wine that represented different aspects of the Exodus story, and he's redefined their significance around his death and his resurrection. So that moving forward, this meal would represent a new kind of Exodus. It would represent freedom from slavery that ran even deeper than what the Israelites experienced when they were in Egypt. It represented Jesus freeing us from slavery to our sin. Jesus gave us this meal as a way to remember that we have been forgiven. Not because we deserve it, not because we've earned it, right? but as a, as a gift of grace, because of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. And through his resurrection, the power of sin and evil in our lives has been overcome. And as we participate in this meal with others, we're reminded that God has also forgiven them and rescued them and brought them into his family through Christ's death and resurrection, right? Through grace. We're all invited to this table by grace and grace alone. This meal reminds us who we are, that we're God's people and that we have new life in him. And it reminds us of the story that we've been called to participate in, right? The story of God breaking into the world and Christ to renew and to restore all things. Now, there's two aspects of this passage that I want to draw our attention to this morning because it's easy for us to come to a section of scripture like this with like our 21st century lens and our, our understanding of how we do communion today and to miss some key things. And both of the things I want to touch on come from this one statement that Jesus makes in verse 19, where he says, do this in remembrance of me. So firstly, when Jesus says, do this, what exactly is he talking about? Think about that for a second. What's he talking about? Jesus isn't picturing his disciples eating a little wafer, cracking the plastic, (laughs) eating a little wafer, and having a little sip of grape juice as part of a worship service. He's not. Not that there's necessarily anything wrong with how we do it today, right? Traditions kind of develop, and that's okay. But this would have been totally unfamiliar to Jesus. 
Jesus is talking about the whole experience that he's sharing with his disciples, gathering together in community around the table, participating in this meal that would come to represent his death and his resurrection. And in our culture, communion has become very individualistic, hasn't hasn't it? It's about our personal sin. It's about our personal forgiveness and our personal relationship with Jesus. We think about it very much in like a us and God kind of sense, right? That vertical relationship. And our personal relationship with Jesus matters, right? It matters a lot. But what Jesus is calling his disciples to here is actually much bigger than that. It's that, but it's also more than that, right? He's calling his disciples to participate in this meal uh, where they would gather together and where they would recognize that they're part of a community. And we see that in the early church, like the communion, when they practiced the Lord's Supper, there was nothing individualistic about it. They would gather together in someone's home. It would be part of a bigger meal. It wasn't very introspective. It was probably really rowdy. It was probably very celebratory. And it was a meal that was shared by people who were doing life together. And so when we take communion, it's important that we remember that it's not just about us and Jesus. Really, it's about presence. It's about God's presence with us, our presence with him, and our presence with one another. As we gather together to remember that Jesus' death and resurrection is at the center of everything we are and everything we do. And the other thing I want to point out is this. Jesus tells his disciples to do this in remembrance of him. Now, normally, when we think about remembering something, we think about calling something to mind that took place in the past, right? Like you might remember how you celebrated Christmas last year, or you might remember the first time you drove a car. But when Jesus talks about remembering here, he's talking about something different. When we celebrate communion, we aren't just remembering an event that happened 2,000 years ago. Instead, we're remembering that Jesus' death and resurrection changed everything forever. And we're pulling it into the present and letting our lives take shape around the reality that God is still in the business of resurrection. That we're invited to live this new kind of kingdom life today. So there's a past element to communion as we remember that this historical event took place, that Jesus was crucified, that he rose from the dead. But there's also this present element to communion in how that gets worked out in our day-to-day lives. And there's also a future element to communion. Because Jesus tells his disciples he won't eat this meal again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. This is new, right? Passover? was about what happened in the past. Jesus is introducing something new to this meal. He's pointing to a future promise when his kingdom will come in all of its fullness, right? And the world will be made right once and for all and we'll eat and drink 
together with him. So when we take communion, we're remembering the promise that we have in Christ that he will come and he will make things right once and for all, that we all have this future hope regardless of the circumstances that we're facing today. When we eat and drink uh, communion, we're declaring that the past and the present and the future are all brought together in Christ. And we move forward from the table with a renewed sense of who we are and our place in God's story. Now, we can imagine how much this meal would have meant to Jesus' followers after his death and resurrection as they went on to carry the gospel forward and as they faced different trials and persecution right, again and again. They had this meal to come back to that reminded them that actually Jesus was present with them and that because of his death and resurrection and through the power of his spirit in them, they could live out of the realities of his kingdom, right? They could experience his love and his presence regardless of their circumstances. And the early church participated in communion often, This was just part of their normal day-to-day rhythm. But the early church, like our churches today, was made up of human beings. And one thing we all know to be true about human beings is that we're messy, right? And so there were times when things got off course in how the early church was going about this. And this morning, we're going to look at a couple of places where the Apostle Paul confronts these issues, these situations that were happening Uh, and the churches that he was writing to. And just for the sake of time this morning, we're not going to read all the way through the passages that we're going to look at, but I want to encourage you to dig into them in the week ahead because the, the correctives that Paul gives here are like incredibly relevant in our context, even after all of these years. So the first passage that we're going to talk about is 1 Corinthians 11, and we're going to look at verses 17 to 34. So here's what's happening. Throughout the letter to the Corinthians, Paul's having to address all kinds of divisions. In the Corinthian church, uh, they're divided about which leader they're following, right? Some are following Paul, some are following Apollos. They're divided about which spiritual gifts people have and which spiritual gifts are better than the other spiritual gifts. They're kind of putting each other on this rating scale. And in the passage that we're looking at This morning, Paul is addressing a division that's broken out about how they're practicing the Lord's Supper. And Paul is ticked, okay? He is not impressed with what's going on in how the Corinthians are practicing the Lord's Supper. So this is what he says as he starts off this section of the letter. He says, in the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. Ouch, (laughs) serious, right? In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. Most scholars think Paul's being sarcastic there, right? He's saying, like, of course, there have to be divisions because we got to know whose team God is on. So then, when you come together... It's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For when you're eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. 
Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. See what I mean? He's ticked. He's not happy. So here's what's happening. When the Christians got together to celebrate the Lord's Supper in this time, they weren't meeting in church buildings, right? They were meeting in people's homes. Someone who's wealthy would have a big enough home to accommodate everyone, and they would have the church over to celebrate uh, the Lord's Supper, to worship together. And uh, the rich people who didn't have to work during the day would show up first, and they would start eating and drinking before everyone else got there. They were hungry. They thought, what's the problem? We're going to get a head start. And then by the time the poor would show up later, there would be nothing left for them. So they'd go hungry. And, you know, this seems kind of rude in our cultural context, but the the culture at this time was extremely divided socioeconomically. So it was entirely normal for the rich to overlook and to exclude the poor and to pay no attention to whether their needs were taken care of. But in Christ, there is no rich and poor. All of those things that divide us in the world have been broken down through Jesus' death and resurrection. And this meal is supposed to be the one place where people gather together and the labels that the world has put on us disappear because we find our identity in Christ. And so Paul says, when we let the social divisions that are normalized within our culture impact the way we practice the Lord's Supper, it's not actually the Lord's Supper. At Christ's table, the rich and the poor and men and women and slave and free and Jew and Gentile are all equal and are invited to participate in remembering Jesus' death and resurrection. And the second passage we're going to look at is Romans 14. This is another place where Paul is confronting divisions that have broken out in the church. But this time, there's a debatable issue that people have different convictions about that has led to all kinds of conflict in the community. Does that sound familiar at all? You know, this is the kind of thing we can relate to, right? This is very practical what he's addressing. And the issue that Paul's dealing with is whether or not it was okay to eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols. Okay, now that's not a major issue, specifically in our cultural context. But to the Christians who were living in this culture, this was a huge deal. Okay, there were Christians who believed that it was always wrong to eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols, which was something that was very normal to pick up at the meat market but they believed it was wrong because they associated it with the worship of pagan gods. And other Christians believed that since there's only one true God, it doesn't really make a difference one way or the other. Meat's meat. So they didn't understand what the big deal was. So this was causing problems, needless to say, as the Christians were gathering together to share meals together. So how does Paul address it? Romans 14 says this, accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. The message 
translates it this way. I love this. It says, welcome with open arms fellow believers who don't see things the way you do. And don't jump all over them every time they do or say something you don't agree with. Even when it seems that they're strong on opinions but weak in the faith department. Remember, they have their own history to deal with. Treat them gently. Can you imagine what our communities would look like if we put that into practice? It's beautiful. And then Paul goes on to explain that people have different reasons for landing on different convictions with these secondary issues that aren't really core to our faith. And when that happens within our communities, that we need to have grace with each other. Because ultimately, it's God that we're accountable to. And he has invited each of us to the table. And so Paul says, if you eat meat, eat it for Jesus. And if you're just going to eat vegetables, eat the vegetables and give thanks to God for those vegetables. And don't make anyone feel like they don't belong if they see things differently than you in these kinds of issues. And then verse 19 says, let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. Do not not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it's wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. Did you catch that? See what Paul says there? He says, don't destroy the work of God for the sake of food. That's intense. Paul says, God is on the move in each of our lives and in our communities, but we can get so caught up debating about who's right and who's wrong and fighting for our agenda that people totally miss it or worse. We can destroy the work of God by stirring up conflict and pulling people away from what really matters. And as followers of Jesus, we're called to be people who are more concerned about the work of God, what God's up to in people's lives, in our communities, and in the world than we are with taking a stand for our opinions. And so when we come to the communion table, we need to remember that it isn't our table. We don't make the rules. We don't make the invitation list. It's Christ's table, and just like everyone else, we're there by grace alone. So Paul was adamant that the early Christians, when they gathered together around the table, that they did it in a way that was faithful to the gospel that they were proclaiming. There was no room for social or economic division. There was no room for judging people or excluding them because they have different opinions about debatable issues. Anything that displaced Christ from the center of the table had to go. So, What do you think that Paul might say to us about the way that we practice communion if he were to write us a letter today? If you're at Evergreen or just like in the Western church in general, what kinds of things do you think he would say? Maybe he'd have some of the same concerns or similar concerns, right, about the divisions that exist within our communities. Maybe he'd challenge us for making it so individualistic and ignoring our relationships with others. 
Maybe he'd raise concerns about consumerism and the way we can just kind of go to church and stand back and critique what we like and what we don't like without really being engaged and seeing ourselves as part of a, a body where we're all connected. There's so many ways that we can forget why we're doing what we're doing when we practice communion. It's so easy for us to just go through the motions without really thinking about what it means and what it looks like for that to get worked out in our lives and in our community. And so the invitation this morning is to come to the table with a renewed sense of what it means to live as somebody who's anchored in the reality of Jesus' death and resurrection. The table is the place where we can bring all of our guilt and our shame, and we can experience a deep sense of forgiveness and freedom. The table is the place where we can bring our whole selves with all of our strengths and our weaknesses and our successes and our failures, and we can know that this is a place where we are welcome because of Christ and where we belong. It's a place where we can bring our fear and our uncertainty, and we can be reminded that the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives in us. The table is a place where we can experience hope and joy and reconciliation and community. It's where we experience the presence of Christ and let our lives be reordered according to his kingdom. The table is the place where we remember what it means to be people who are saved by grace and to be a community that's defined by grace. So this morning, as we said, we're gonna share in communion together. But before we do that, the worship team's gonna come on up uh, to the front and they're gonna lead us in a song that focuses on Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, the whole gospel story, and the promise that we have that one day he'll come back and set everything right once and for all. And as we sing this song, I just wanna encourage you to let your heart settle in on the reality of the gospel that we're about to declare as we share in communion together. Would you stand as we sing? I'm just gonna pray. God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are a God of grace. We thank you that you are a God who understands our humanity, who sees our weakness and our failures and who invites us to your table anyways uh, through your grace, through Jesus' death and resurrection. And God, I pray that you would, um, regardless of where we're at this morning, I pray that you would speak to each one of us, that you would remind us once again that you invite us, that you call us to your table and that when we're, when we're uh, there, we're in community, we're present to you. You're present to us, God, and we are part of this family that's present to each other. So prepare our hearts now as we worship, as we prepare to um, take communion together.